Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mets fans, welcome to episode 240 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it, and I hope you're strapped in because we got a good, long show for you today. First up, Chris McShane and I talk about the last week or so in Metsville. We touch on Jacob DeGrom's poor outing, Tyler Pill's decent outing, and a whole lot more. Here we go. Well, Chris, we were both in Pittsburgh this weekend. Uh, I didn't get to a game. I was visiting friends. You got to two games at PNC Park, and we were talking about this before the show, and you said, save this for the show. So I did, but here we go. Um, we can both identify like a couple of very clear reasons why PNC Park is wonderful, but when you're there, it somehow exceeds everything you've heard about it, and it exceeds like the couple of things that everybody points to about why it's great. So just try and paint a picture for our listeners who haven't been to PNC Park. Why do they have to get there? Well, for me, it was just, it was sort of that wow factor that didn't wear off. Um, I don't know if you could ever really get used to, you know, or or accustomed to, take for granted that you're watching games at that park. 
But based on hearing about it from professionals who you know cover the sport, uh, I, it doesn't seem that that's the case. So you know, for me, it was just uh, I am not the most well traveled in terms of ballparks, but I've been to a few. You know, I, I, City Field is legitimately a very nice park, and I try not to take that for granted. Um, you know. Citizens Bank in Philadelphia is a really great place to uh, to watch a game. Uh, you know, Fenway, I grew up going to a lot of games there and still love it. I get thrilled just to see any random game in Fenway. And, and uh, PNC, it, it's just, it's up there. I You know, Fenway, and I haven't been to Wrigley yet, but those parks are special because they, you know, they... They are so old, even with renovations and everything. Uh, you know, they have that sort of feel to them, and I think that's very special. But PNC, it, it, it felt like we looked up while we were there on the first night when it opened, and it didn't feel at all like it's been around for 16, 17 years. I was at the second ever game there. Wow, It was nice. a preseason game, Mets and Pirates. They did their um, like the last two games of spring training that year were at the ballpark. Oh yeah, yeah, Same, the the like the test run basically. Exactly, yeah, the the soft opening or whatever they call it. But yeah, so right. I was there, so I gave Mookie Wilson a standing ovation. He was the Mets' first base coach that year, and uh, it was it was lovely. But I yeah, mean, let, let's just paint the picture here. First of all, you sat in the perfect spot the first game. Yeah, you were sitting behind home plate, so you're looking out on the Roberto Clemente Bridge and the Pittsburgh skyline. And the river. And it's just this absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous combination of natural beauty and like nice architecture. And it's just, it's very hard to describe how affecting that view is during a baseball game. Yeah. It, I don't know. We found ourselves having to remember to look down and watch the game. <laughs> You know, and not that uh, we're obviously very into baseball, um, but, you know, it, it was just, it was that great. Uh, and specifically, we sat in section 316 for anyone who's considering seeing a game there, uh, either sometime this year for the first time or, or next year when the Mets get back out there. Um, but the section 316, right behind home plate, upper deck, not all the way at the top, but, you know, in a, in a good spot where you can just see everything. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, that, you know, you have to think as much as you've seen on TV, uh, just think of the difference between anything that you've ever seen in real life and then sent a photo of and what that photo looks like to the person on the other end compared to what it feels like when you're there. Um, and that, that, that's the really the only way I can explain it. And it's um, the, like they, they show and talk a lot about the Roberto Clemente bridge on Mets broadcasts and they praise it constantly and all that. And, you know, if you watch every year, it might almost get to a point, not that you don't believe it, but just, you know what Gary's going to say about it or Keith or Ron or, or whatever, you know? Um, but you actually go experience it, and then that's that's a different thing. And the bridge, uh, you know, from far afar, it might look larger uh, than it is. It's not tiny, but 
it's really, you know, it's one of many bridges in the city. Uh, and you're, you're walking over it. You're, you're not that high up, but you're high enough up that you can just see into the park perfectly. Um, you know, there's a million great spots to take photos, either of what's in front of you or of, of you yourself. Uh, and, and, you know, have this amazing backdrop. So, yeah, it's... I don't know. I, it's hard to describe it any better uh, than that, other than just praising the hell out of it. But I mean, you have to realize Three Rivers Three River Stadium is not that far from there. It's sort of in between where that is and where Heinz Field is now. Uh, right. And I, I was actually at the implosion of Three River Stadium. Nice. <laughs> I stood across the river and watched it blow up. Um, but but that was like that was your classic, like you know. A bowl-shaped, multi-purpose stadium that didn't have any real character to it. And all you heard the year they were building PNC Park was that this is going to have so much character, it's going to be such a great place to see a ball game. And then the team was terrible for 15 years or so after the ballpark opened. And so I don't think people in the city embraced the ballpark as much as people who were from out of town did. Because, you know, I, being a Mets fan, when I was living in Pittsburgh, whenever the Mets came to town, I'd go to two or three of the games, and I'd walk around saying, like, this is the most beautiful ballpark I've ever been in. And it seemed like all the Mets fans there were kind of, you'd catch us all looking up and like, wow, this is gorgeous. And the Pirates fans were just holding their icy lights and kept walking. You know, it wasn't, I don't think they realized how lucky they were until the ballpark was packed every night. And, right. uh, you know, and then it just feels different. Yeah, but yeah, it was. Um, and there were other things that were enjoyable. Um, you know, you can get pierogies in the park. Uh, there's other food. I, apparently, the food and craft beer menu there has gotten better in recent years. I've heard so, that as well. Yes. Um, so I can't speak to how it was before, but but that stuff was all good. Uh, City Field is still king in terms of ballpark food, right? Of course. But man, ballpark food did not feel important at all. <laughs> like that, that, you know, I'm not. That's not why I'm there. I love the city field has that, and I think it was a very smart thing the Mets did. Um, but that's not why I'm at the game. So, yeah, it's just it, – it feels surreal. Um, you know, there's not a bad view. But if you're there for the first time, you certainly either want to be behind home plate or on the third base line. Yeah. Um, to really get to take it all in and – yeah, you know, the Pirates fans are mostly really great. Um, they love Neil Walker uh, more more than you can imagine. But, uh, <laughs> more than the expectations that I had for PNC were exceeded. It, uh, it, there's That's how much they love Neil Walker. You have to realize that, uh, you said this before the podcast, but Pittsburgh and its environs have less than half a million people in it. So if you think about how small of a city that is, there's a kid from there, more than likely, you know somebody from his hometown, right? It just it just works out that way. So he really feels like a native son. And, you know, he was a good player for them. He wasn't a great player for them. He wasn't, he wasn't as good as David Wright was for Mets fans. But just imagine for a second if David Wright was traded in 2008. Right. Yeah. How how much that would have broken your heart as a Mets fan, and you would have you would, if he was traded to the Pirates. Every time you met a Pirates fan, you would say, "Oh man, isn't David Wright great?" <laughs> it's, it's a similar situation to that. So, oh for sure. And there was a streak; it was broken at some point finally. But there was a streak 
most of, uh, I think all of Saturday, because we were there for the games on Saturday and Sunday, uh, all of Saturday, I did not have a conversation with a Pirates fan who didn't bring up Neil Walker. <laughs> and then at some point on Sunday, we talked to one who didn't. And I admitted, I said, oh, there we go. That's that's the first Pirates fan who didn't bring him up. But, but yeah, it's just, it's perfectly situated. It's kind of mind-blowing that that parcel of land was there. Um, you know, I, I'm not super familiar with the history of Pittsburgh, but people had basically said that that area wasn't really much before. It wasn't, yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's funny that like these bridges that they're they're not mundane. It's a very charming and and uh, relatively unique thing that there's just a bunch of streets that have bridges on them, and yeah. you know, in that particular part, they there are three that are basically identical. Um, or close to it, and then you know several others around the city that are the same color and everything. But you, you take what might seem relatively routine, and then you you put this ballpark next to it, and the architecture in the city is anything but routine. Uh, I was, you know, sort of in all of that. Uh, it's, you know, obviously there's plenty of it here in New York City, but uh, when there's less normal buildings around the interesting stuff it makes the interesting stuff look even more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a really good place to visit the, uh, the, I don't know. I wouldn't even construe this necessarily as a complaint. The beer wasn't quite as cheap as I thought it would be, but <laughs> well, uh, that's but, definitely but changed since I lived there. So <laughs> yeah. And there was plenty of it, plenty of uh, good stuff. Um, Southern tier, which I'm not super familiar with as a brewery, but they actually have a, a satellite location that's, uh, about, I mean, two blocks, but it, it's super short. It's uh, it's on a stretch of multiple places that have that are very very close to PNC. Um, everything's very pedestrian friendly. The you know all the bridges have pedestrian lanes to, to use. Um, yeah, and it, there's something I think that, I guess to to not go on for a half hour about how much I loved the place. <laughs> um, but I think the moment for me was, you know, you take a lap of the field level and there's some stairs involved. It's not, it's not all on one level like city fields. Um, but it's, you know, just a couple flights of stairs. It's really not the end of the world. Uh, but you know, the way we went in, we went in that, the, the home plate entrance and we started our lap going, Third base, left field, got the aforementioned uh, pierogies. And then you go down some stairs, and it's all like, oh, wow, this is great, this is great. And then you go down some stairs, and you go along left field a little bit. Uh, and then you come back up a short flight of stairs. So uh, you come up to where the Roberto Clemente entrance is, mm -hmm. uh, or where his statue is. I, I'm just assuming the entrances have names like that. Um. But you you come up this short staircase, and the Clemente Bridge is right there. And that, for me, was when it all kind of clicked. Like, it was all great. And then at that moment, that was like, like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is a special place. And and you realize that when people say, you know, I, before I left, I said to a friend who's not super familiar with baseball, but familiar enough that when I said that this usually gets put right up there with San Francisco, he said, how is that possible? Like San Francisco is, you know, right on the, you know, right on the water, that kind of thing. And, and, and I said, I know, but like, that's, 
that's the hype it gets. And it lives up to that. Um, I might be driving up ticket prices for the next time I go out there. But I, you know, <laughs> if you haven't done it yet, because years, years, I uh, had said, you know, oh, this is the year I got to go. I got to go, you know, see him. And then finally did it. If you've been doing that for a long time, uh, make a point of it. Uh, you know, the Mets should, we'll, we'll get to the Mets baseball stuff in a minute, but uh, <laughs> they they should still be relevant uh, uh, next year and the year after. But even if they're not, you know, j- just go. It's uh, it's worth it. We drove. It's not that bad of a drive. If, uh, if you get a deal on a flight, it's an incredibly short flight. Um, yeah, it's like 44 so, minutes in the air or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe next season we'll have to do an unofficial Amazing Avenue trip out there. Yeah, that would be fun. I mean, and a lot of times they do get a weekend series. Yeah, out there. Um, and yeah, it's you can tell like a lot of the things that you might love about City Field as a Mets fan. You can tell that many of them were inspired by this park. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely go, folks. Uh, I was telling Chris before the show. I went to college in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University, and it's it's walkable to the ballpark. We would walk there all the time, and it was just it was the greatest. And it's uh, it remains my favorite ballpark in the country by a pretty substantial margin. Uh, I've been to San Francisco, and that's that's great. I've been to San Diego, and that's great. I've been to Wrigley and Fenway, and those are great for totally different. I can't you can't even compare those. That's just a different thing altogether. But I think yeah. in terms of if if you measure it all together, if you measure the ease to get there from the East Coast, it, the cost of the tickets. I mean, how not to get too deep here, but did you pay more than like thirty bucks for a ticket? Well, yeah, but, um, but not much more than that, right? No, those upper deck seats were twenty six. Got it yeah. from the box office, which was um, comparable to StubHub. Uh, maybe maybe even slightly less, mm-hmm. um, and then we kind of waited it out just to see. We want to see the place first and get a sense of where we wanted to sit. Uh, and then we sat in section one nineteen, which is field level. They they have a sort of a moat, uh, more you know, city field is more like behind home plate on the field level is is blocked off. You know, yeah. Um, but they have a, something resembling you know, a little bit more of a gap in a moat, like say Yankee stadium. Right. Right. Uh, um, which I know that's like a negative comparison probably, but we sat in seats maybe five or six rows behind that gap. So that's probably the, you know, 12th row, maybe even less of actual seats. And Mm -hmm. those were about including fees, about $50 each. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's quite affordable. So when you, when you when you factor in the affordability, the ease to get there, the fact that you can do the trip, you know, quickly and cheaply, see a couple of games in the in a beautiful ballpark with fans that are engaged and that are nice, and you know, it doesn't hurt for me. I have a lot of friends still there too, but it's it's I can't recommend it highly enough. Everybody should do that trip. Uh, yeah, that's my speech about that. So the Mets. Um, <laughs> Tonight, we're recording this on Wednesday night. Jacob DeGrom got rocked tonight by the Brewers. But aside from that, 
the Mets have looked pretty good since last we spoke. You know, they uh, they took the weekend series with the Pirates, and if they lose tomorrow, they split the series with the Brewers, but hopefully they win the series with the Brewers. And, uh, you know, Tyler Pill made a start that was not terrible, which I don't think anybody had on their Mets bingo card this season, of uh, Tyler Pill making an effective start. And uh, overall, the team has looked... You know, they've been hanging in there, and that's what we've talked about a lot on this show, is just the the Mets need to hang in there until the big guns get back in Cespedes and Syndergaard. Uh, So how are you feeling overall about the Mets uh, right now? Uh, You know, given the circumstances, pretty decent. I really would have liked to sweep the Brewers just to, you know, build a winning streak, get that much closer to 500. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully they take the final uh, game of the series and make it three or four, uh, you know, Saturday night stung, uh, <clears> that they had that lead late and lost, but you know, overall they, they've at least gotten back, you know, so far in their last six games, they've won two or three twice. Um, you know, if they make it three or four against Milwaukee to get the pirates again, obviously the pirates are not in uh, top form at the moment. Um, you know, they, they haven't been terrible or anything, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not blowing anybody away. Uh, there's reason to think that the Mets can hang in there. Uh, and that's, you know, that's really all you can ask for with everybody who's out. So, uh, I, I don't know if I'd bet at all on them making the playoffs this year. But I'm certainly nowhere near ready to give up on the season. So, um, you know, it's just been nice to see. The offense has been fine pretty much yeah. most of the month. Uh, and, and that's the funny thing is the offense is basically produced in a way that I think a lot of people figured it could last year and just didn't. Uh, and, you know. Not not a whole lot has changed. Most of the personnel is the same uh, in, in terms of the players and the coaches and, and the manager. But the results have been very different in terms of runs scored per game. They've done it without Cespedes even being a, a part of that. Uh, you know, it's it's always tough to get the ideal scenario in any sport where the offense and the defense, for the lack of a better term for, for pitching, but just getting them both clicking at the same time right. is is never never easy um but yeah it's the, the pitching has the, you know DeGrom obviously was not good tonight his previous start was outstanding but the pitching has sort of looked like it's turned a corner and the offense has continued uh again except for tonight <laughs> scoring just one run uh but the offense has looked like they might be Legitimately very good, uh, and the the pitching has shown some really positive signs. That's the combination the Mets need, you know, to make themselves uh, really relevant as the season goes past the trade deadline and, and into the final two months. And, you know, we've got two months from tonight until the trade deadline, and that is not that long a time. Uh <laughs> Like in real life, but in a baseball season, a whole lot can happen. Right. 
So yeah, I uh, I'm I'm probably feeling still more optimistic than the average Mets fan as per usual, but um it's nice that it hasn't slipped completely away yet, you know. That's it, we're still under the threshold that we had established uh several weeks ago now. Uh they are 5 games under. It is much later, so you know, I'll, I'll stick to that. There's some concern that this might not end well, but, but yeah, they also haven't slipped to ten or more games below. Right. Uh, you know, every, every time that it seems like they're about to do that, they they seem to win a series, uh, or or you know, at least split one, or just not fall into the abyss. Right. Uh, you know that what what this season really needs uh, is for them to sweep the Nationals once, because even where they are now, you'd start to look in and go, "Oh, okay, you know, they're only five out or right. you know, four out, whatever it is." I don't know what the Nationals did tonight um, at the moment, but but yeah, it just that sort of thing. And especially if they could do it with Cespedes around and all that, you, you know, it, it gets to be not too hard to dream. Yeah, I agree with all that. Let's um, let's pencil that on the calendar for soon, okay? <laughs> that yeah. sweep. Let's pencil that in. Let's, <laughs> let's make that happen, folks. Um, now, obviously, Degrom did not look good tonight, which is you know not ideal, but not altogether. Too panic-inducing. Guys have bad starts. And DeGrom has been so good thus far, I don't think we're too worried about him. Um, what do you think about Tyler Pill on Tuesday night? Uh, you know, I don't know how sustainable that form of pitching is, but the guy handled himself well. Um, you know, I'm not generally a big pitch-to-contact fan. Uh, you know, I like my strikeouts. Uh, he, he walked... A few guys, but he kind of held it all together. You know, I, I, and nothing against him uh, personally. I'm not hoping to see him make too many more starts for the team this year. But I, I was impressed that he was able to, much like what I just said about the Mets, kind of like get into a little bit of danger and whatever, but not let things spiral out of control. Um, you know, the the stuff is what you would expect it would be if you'd read about him at all coming into uh, this season over his last several years in the minors. And, yeah, I, it's probably the best spot start. And I know it might, it might be a spot pair of starts, but probably the best one the Mets have gotten out of anybody in uh, in this season, certainly. And maybe going back a little farther than that. Yeah, on the broadcast, uh, Ronnie said that somebody had mentioned to him that he reminded them of Rick Reed. And I don't think that's a terrible comparison. Uh, Reed was obviously a little bit better than Pill, but, you know, I think stylistically that makes a little bit of sense. And, you know, it wasn't the most exciting game to watch. It wasn't the most... uh, I mean, it, it it was it was exciting in the sense that it was a little bit nerve wracking for a while there because Pill was pitching in contact, 
because he wasn't blowing folks away because he was walking a lot of batters. But like you said, it's a spot start, and the Mets really needed a quality spot start out of him. They needed, I don't mean quality start the uh, the stat. They just needed, they needed someone to hang in there. They they couldn't have like what drove me crazy last week on last Thursday. The forecast was calling for potential rain, so the Mets didn't have Degrom start, and they had Montero start. And I said to my wife, "Well, if I'm going to watch this game, I'm just going to watch it to get angry, because there's no way Montero's going to win this game." And he didn't. He lost the game. And I feel like. They needed Pill to go out there and not pull a Montero. Yeah. Yeah, and he did that, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. I want to briefly touch on Robert Gazelman because it looks like he's going to get maybe one more start and then, uh, and then, or maybe two, and then be demoted to the bullpen. Uh, Gazelman seems to have maybe put it together the last couple of starts. He's looking much, much better. Uh, but I, I understand that. With Matt's and I mean, Matt's going back in the rotation no matter what, and with Lugo's elbow concerns, I think it makes more sense to be able to use him as a starter where you can get him warmed up more slowly. You don't have to rush him in to a game situation. So, because so, makes sense in the uh, bullpen. But I was thinking about this the other day. Is there any chance that Gazelman doesn't make another 10 starts for the Mets? Hmm. I mean, it seems like he will. I, I know it seems right now the plan is that he move to the bullpen, uh, and, and the bullpen can certainly use another arm that's effective. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, if he has another start like that, I, if not just you're not just considering the potential for injury to, to somebody else uh, to keep a spot open for him. But if he has another start like his most recent one, and it's not that he like threw a perfect game or. You know, it looked like vintage Matt Harvey, but it, it it's kind of just been like, oh, right. You know, we were excited about this guy coming into the year. Um, and it was, you know, it, maybe that wasn't entirely wrong. Uh, you know, people, <clears throat> people have watched a lot of baseball, you know, thought very high things of him. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't time to write him off completely just yet. I also think just realistically, Wheeler's going to be shut down in a month, probably. And- I don't know. I could see. I mean, the way he's been going, I, I hope. And honestly, I'm, I'm not just going all, you know, Keith, that there's no limit or there should be no limits on pitches and innings and all that. But the way he's been going, the way things have been going, I could see them just going. No, no, he's, he's going to keep pitching. Uh, and I honestly I don't even know if that's a bad thing, you know. We we don't know that limiting those things saves pitchers from injuries. Uh, obviously, there's a point of recklessness. You know, pitchers shouldn't be throwing 200 pitches per game. That seems pretty obvious. Um, but yeah, I I could see Wheeler pitching deeper into the season than than people are thinking. I think that the problem with Wheeler is beyond the innings count is that he very rarely has um, easy innings or easy at-bats. He throws a ton of pitches per at-bat. And so it's not like you could say, well, you know, he went six innings this game, but he really only, only threw, you know, 65 or 70 pitches. That never happens with Wheeler. So his innings count is also 
affected by how by how intently how intensely he's throwing during those innings as well you know yeah 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 absolutely um all right now this is kind of our i guess our last topic of of the uh, show here but you and i have been talking about this a little bit and i think it's time to uh to make this a regular segment on the show so chris why are people dead wrong about wanting to start Jay Bruce over Curtis Granderson? <laughs> I I said uh, to a group of Mets fans uh, who I, I knew some and the others were uh, friends of theirs out in Pittsburgh before the game on Saturday night. And I said to them that, uh, you know, going the rest of the way, uh, Curtis Granderson, you know, Cespedes should be back soon. This was before the, you know, the brief shutdown for the quad thing. Um, so I said, you know, Cespedes, <clears throat> Cespedes should be back soon. Um, going forward, Granderson's my starting right fielder and Bruce is the guy who, you know, loses the bulk of the playing time there. And they thought I was absolutely insane. Um, but I will make my case that April was uh, April eight. April was an aberration uh, for for Granderson, and, and certainly more to the extreme than it ever has been in the past. He's had some months where he's been really bad at the plate uh, as a Met before, and you know certainly you know, I haven't looked recently, but I'm sure it happened at points in his career before that. Uh, you know he, uh, and I, I say this respectfully, he, he's never been the best hitter in the game or anything, but like a lot of guys who are pretty good or very good, you know, there are going to be some bad stretches in there. Um, so I think April was just an extreme version of that. Uh, I know he's 36, but you look at what he did over the, you know, the last three years uh, with the Mets. And if you're married to batting average and RBI, you might think he was terrible, but you know, I don't know. Come on, like, don't don't view baseball that narrowly. <laughs> but if you you know, if you don't look at it through just those things, and honestly, even if you do, the the last three years he was clearly a better hitter than Jay Bruce, um, clearly a better defender and right. You know, obviously he doesn't have a great arm, uh, but he'll get to a lot more balls out there than than Bruce will. Um, you know, a little more sure-handed when he does, you know, just in the recent games that we've seen, we've seen Bruce, uh, you know, botch a ball that should have been a single, turn it into a triple. Um, That was one that Tyler Pill got out of uh, despite that. Uh, And, and, you know, Bruce has had a, or I can say had now, since all of the May games are in the past, he had a eh, month of May, and Granderson had a very good one. Uh, so I guess you could counter my argument for Granderson by saying that this year he's only been good for one month. And, you know, I'm making the argument that Bruce was only good for one month or, or only great for one month. Um, I just – I buy the longer track record – the longer recent track record of success coming into this year and these guys sort of both returning towards those 
career norms and, and last three seasons uh, norms that they had established. And, you know, you combine those types of expectations as hitters and the defense. I, to me, it's just Granderson's the better baseball player. You know, Bruce was acquired uh, primarily because Conforto had struggled and, you know, Ligaris, uh, you know, didn't, didn't play that many games and everything. And, you know, it was sort of a, an odd fit. Um, but yeah, that's, there you go. They have it. That, that, that's it for me. I mean, I'm just, maybe I like Granderson too much, but I, I think I, uh, it's not just the person. It, it's the combination of, of those numbers. Yeah. I, I think that maybe you're a little bullish on Granderson and maybe a little down on Bruce, but I don't think your overall thesis is, is all that flawed. I think that, Granderson just offers more options to the Mets than Bruce does. I think when Bruce is going well, he is a more, he's a clearly, like his skills are more clearly on display than Granderson's are. But Granderson's a better fielder than Bruce. He's a better runner than Bruce. He's uh, a more patient hitter than Bruce is. I think those things are sometimes all taken for granted because he doesn't hit home runs with quite the authority that Bruce does. Uh, both are still useful players. Both still have a place in this team. And I would trade either of them if the red offer came through later this season. But we'll see about that as it, yeah, as it a, goes along. A contending... I mean, there are worse problems than having one of them on your bench. But a contending version of the Mets that's buying, I would say... We, Trading one of them for a relief pitcher, uh, which is a clear need, uh, it would would make some sense. And it's been nice, you know, in mid-September or early September, uh, late August last year, like everyone, we were very much down on Bruce. Uh, but it's been nice that he's at least established himself as a, a you know, still a useful major league hitter. I think that was probably, uh, people are overly negative about what he could do as a hitter last off season. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's not, he's not terrible and you know, it's, it's one of those things. It would be perhaps a good fit for another team that could use a push this year and you know has a reliever to spare um but yeah that's obviously my preference would be that he'd be the one to be traded but i could live with it if uh if granderson brought back somebody who could really help the team and bruce just kept doing what he's doing yeah and obviously at this point conforto is the uh starting center fielder until you know, 2018. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, all right, Chris, until we speak next time, uh, let's hope that, uh, that the Mets keep doing what they're doing, I guess, kind of, sort of. Yeah. Well, Hey, the last six games has been a 666 winning percentage. Yeah. Number of the beast. There we go. 
Yeah, so if they do that the rest of the way, hold on, let's do some quick on pace, some quick, uh, terrible analysis, but some quick on pace math. Uh, they've played 51 games, right? Yes. Yep. So, so yeah, um, if they kept winning two out of three the rest of the way, which is excellent baseball, they'd win 74 more games, they'd finish the season with 97 wins, things would be pretty great. Yeah. So, in that sense, yes, I hope they keep doing what they've been doing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll be at the game Friday night if anybody wants to hang out for a few minutes. So tweet at me, at Brian Needs a Nap. It's my birthday, too, so we can celebrate my birthday that day. Oh, nice. It'll be, it'll be fun. Happy early birthday. Thank you. Or for those who are listening to this on that day, happy happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I can officially run for president. I'm turning 35. So. Oh, nice. So I might leave the show in the dust if I decide to run in 2020. I was going to say, you have, you've, you've hosted uh, several shows. It's true. It, I, think, it, I think that's that's all you need, right? <laughs> I was going to say, and so, some might say I'm uh, I'm just as qualified as certain other politicians out there. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Hello, this is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio, and today, on this lovely last day of May, you'll probably hear it at the beginning of June, we're going to take a little tour around the National League East, because the uh, Mets haven't seen their rivals in a while. I know we got to, to play them pretty much every day in April, but this past month, the Mets have been apart from their their most familiar foes for a while. So we're going to take a little tour around the National League East and see what's going on with all the teams that we love to hate. Uh, Starting with the top of the standings, the Nationals. They appear to be cruising towards a division title, although maybe the Mets are finally getting their act together after their third straight win, which was uh, Tuesday night. Tyler Pill took the hill and... The bullpen was bad again, but the Mets pulled it out. A win over the Brewers, thanks to Jay Bruce. A line drive up the middle. It was awesome. Anyway, the National have been dealing with plenty of their own drama. On, on Memorial Day, Bryce Harper got into a fight with Giants reliever Hunter Strickland, and he was suspended for four games. I thought it would be a little longer. It probably would have been longer if he connected with his thrown helmet attempt. But it went wide, and he got a couple punches in, and uh, only four games, and uh, I think he should be grateful that it's only that much, although he did little to instigate the situation. It seems Hunter Strickland was holding on to a grudge from three years ago in the playoffs when apparently Harper started quote-unquote woofing from the dugout after hitting a second straight home run off of Strickland. Of course, Ron Darling in the Mets booth thought that the hit-by-pitch was justified, which is just absurd to me for someone to hold a grudge for three years and then throw at one of the best players in baseball. Uh, baseball did suspend Strickland for longer than Harper, although since he's a relief pitcher, I don't, you know, he, got, he got suspended six games, 
I don't know how you compare that for four games for an everyday player. If he was a starter, it would really only be one start, but he's a relief pitcher. So those are the suspensions. They seem a bit light to me. Strickland was clearly throwing at Harper. Harper and both players threw a couple punches before some wild combination of Jeff Samarja and somebody else came flying in to break that up really clumsily. So that so uh there you go. I think it's I think it's ridiculous for Ron Darling Ron Darling in the Mets booth to take a stance that uh Strickland was justified, but he's an old school pitcher. What really do you expect from that? It's it's just an absurd situation. And uh elsewhere in Washington Coda Glover is finally Washington's full-time closer. It took Dusty Baker a really long time, but he did the right thing. Glover is the best guy they have. His whip is under one. He's been doing a great job so far in his new job, and that's just going to make Washington harder to deal with going forward. It's going to make them less likely to shell out even more prospects for a reliever at the deadline, although I expect they still will add to their pen for setup men, but... But uh, Glover has has uh, four straight save chances. His last four appearances have all resulted in saves, so he is rolling and uh, and 16 strikeouts, two walks, 17 and a third innings. He's one of the better relief pitchers going right now. So that's what's going on with Washington. Let's go down a little bit. Atlanta is in third place below the Mets. And... They are, even though they've been surprisingly decent this year, they're still looking to move pieces of the trade deadline. One of those guys could be our best friend, Bartolo Colon, although he continued to struggle on Tuesday night. Gave up nine runs in the third inning, although only two of them were earned. It was a 9-3 loss to the Angels, so all nine of those runs really hurt. It could have been a close game otherwise, but... Even though a lot of those weren't earned, Cologne's still been struggling big time, and that could affect his chances to get traded at the deadline. Although maybe the Mets could get him for even cheaper, but if they if the Mets get Mats and Lugo back, they might not even be looking at Cologne, especially with Tyler Pill. I think I said before that he won on Wednesday night. It was, of course, Tuesday night that Tyler Pill took the hill. That rhymes, and Pill... He got a lot of ground balls. That really wasn't his M.O. at Las Vegas, but hoping he can keep it going for the Mets. He could be a really important member of this team if he stays healthy and effective. But back on the Braves, Cologne might not be able to be traded if his ERA stays this high, but Jaime Garcia's kind of had a weird fluky year. He's walking way too many guys, but still keeping his ERA around three and a half. He could be attractive, especially since he's left-handed. If the team doesn't want him in the rotation, maybe they can use him in the bullpen. And Matt Kemp is really crushing the ball for Atlanta. He could certainly get moved as a a corner outfielder who could still really mash. Uh, Freddie Freeman is even better than Kemp, but he is just such a friend-signed cornerstone. I think the Braves made the right choice in holding on to him because he, he he could be a good hitter for... You know, seven or eight more years. He's just got such a pure swing, great contact, power combo. Freddie Freeman's awesome. The Braves should make him untouchable. And we go into the bottom two spots in the standings. 
Miami Marlins, Don Mattingly decided to hook on to this trend in baseball and batting his best player second. That is Giancarlo Stanton, and it's been paying off so far. Stanton has three home runs in his last five games, although he's now dealing with leg cramps. So keep your eye on that. But the Marlins have won three straight games. They're still 10 below 500, but their lineup is really powerful if Stanton keeps hitting like this. And Justin Bohr quietly having a really nice season. He's got 13 home runs, and he's 12 for 35 against lefties. And, of course, he is left-handed, so that's been a real revelation for him, or revelation. Anyway, he's crushing lefties. He's crushing everybody this year. And then you add Christian Yelich, Marcelo Zuna. This Miami team could make a run if they can figure out something with their pitching staff. Uh, Just not a lot of consistently good players in that part of the team. But Justin Bohr, a lot like Lucas Duda. He's just this big, oafish guy and doesn't get a lot of attention. But he's been a really important part of Miami's offense this year. And finally, the sad Phillies are in last place. They were supposed to maybe approach 500 this year, but it looks looks like it's going to be a miserable campaign for them. There has been a bright spot or two like Aaron Altair. Aaron Nola has returned from injury. That's good. But Michael Franco, the club is thinking about dropping him to the minors, but he's been so because he's been so bad. But if you look at his statistics, it really looks fluky. He's not striking out too much. Only 15% strikeouts, walking around 7 or 8% of the time. Just low BABIP, even though he's got a career-high 21% line drive rate. So, And that BABIP's down around 215. So, so Franco probably should pull out of this soon. Whether he does that in the majors or the minors is yet to be seen. But if you're a Phillies fan, you really have to hold on to the fact that it really doesn't look like Franco's approach is that bad. It looks like it's a fluke that he's playing this poorly. So there's some good news. If you're a Phillies fan listening to a Mets podcast, or if you're just a Mets a Mets fan who had a, the Phillies over wins this year, I don't know if that's going to happen. But uh, the Phillies should eventually turn in a competitive team. It just it looks like they're a little behind schedule right now. And that has completed your tour around the National League East. This has been Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio. In an era when pitchers rarely last more than six or seven innings, much less complete games, the accomplishments of a pitcher during Tom Seaver's era seem like ancient history. Still, relative to those that took the mound in the 60s and 70s, there were few that could match Seaver's accomplishments. And in terms of Mets history, there has been no one better. He pitched 11 full seasons in New York. Here is five best, beginning with number five, 1970. The highlight of that year came on April 22nd, the same day he accepted his 1969 Cy Young Award. Against San Diego, Seaver struck out 19 Padres, the last 10 in succession, the latter remains a major league record. He would finish the season with 283 Ks, a career high at the time, and the most in the National League. He also led the league with a 2.82 ERA and won 20 or more games for the third time in his four-year career. At number four, it's 1975. Whether or not he was out to make up for a disappointing 1974 campaign, Seaver went about to enhance his legendary status, both in the Mets record books and in the annals of baseball itself. 
Tom went 22-9 and and attained two significant strikeout milestones. First came the 2,000th of his career, at the expense of Cincinnati Red Dan Dreesen on July 24th. The next occurred on September 1st against the Pittsburgh Pirates, when he fanned Manny Sanguian to become the first pitcher in Major League history to have eight consecutive seasons of at least 200 strikeouts. Although the Mets faded down the stretch, their ace ended the year on the highest of individual notes, honored with his third Cy Young Award. His second Cy Young came two years before, in 1973, and the number three season on our list. Coming from last place on August 30th to the division title by October 1st, the Mets overcame injury and disappointment early on to reach the postseason and eventually the World Series. Seaver, though, was consistent year-round, with a 2.08 ERA and a league-high 251 strikeouts, although he far too often suffered from a lack of run support. But as the Mets got hot in September, Seaver remained stellar, spinning a complete game against Pittsburgh to put New York in first place for good. Less than two weeks later in Chicago, he won the game that clinched the National League East. Seaver was also the victor in the deciding fifth game of the National League Championship Series against Cincinnati. The amazing season of 1969 is at number two. By the start of the year, Tom Seaver was already one of the game's promising young pitchers, with two all-star appearances in two seasons. But when the year ended and the Mets had won the most improbable of world championships, Seaver, the lead miracle worker, was cemented as arguably the best pitcher in the game, not to mention the toast of New York City. With 25 victories, 5 shutouts, and a 2.21 ERA, Seaver was the Cy Young winner in the National League. And thanks to his impact toward a World Series triumph, he was Sports Illustrated's choice for Sportsman of the Year. The Cy Young Award remains the primary judgment of a pitcher's greatness over a full year. However, Seaver's finest single-season performance occurred in 1971, when the ultimate honor did not go to Tom Terrific. By the time the 71 campaign concluded, he had posted an ERA of 1.76 and a whip of 0.946, both MLB lows. Those would also turn out to be career best numbers, as was his strikeout total of 289, which led the National League. Seaver won eight of his first ten decisions and nine of his final eleven, including a complete game one-hit gem against the eventual world champion Pittsburgh Pirates on September 26th. Alas, the strong September push, ending in another 20-win season, was not enough to sway voters away from Chicago's Ferguson Jenkins and his 24 victories. Nonetheless, 1971 is the greatest of Tom Seaver's many great seasons as a Met. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter, at BrianWright86. Hey everyone, this is Steve Seiper, and I'm back to go over our Money League Players of the Week for Week 8. So, the Las Vegas 51s went 1-6 for the week, which is an absolutely terrible week, and they're entering Week 9 with a 20-31 and record, which puts them dead last in the division, and now seven games behind the Salt Lake Bees and the Albuquerque Isotopes, uh, who are both tied for first place. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went a perfect 7-0, and which is the first time that any of our affiliates have had a perfect week, and they're entering Week 9 with a 28-16 and record, which puts them one and a half games behind the Trenton Thunder for first, but Trenton and Binghamton are playing a three-game series this week. So 
they might flip-flop in the standings. Hopefully they do. Hopefully Binghamton sweeps them. The St. Lucie Mets went 6-1 and for the week and are entering Week 9 with a 25-25 and record, which is the first time they've been at 500 since pretty much the second week of the season. And that puts them four games behind the Palm Beach Cardinals first place. And finally, the Columbia Fireflies went 2-3, and three, and they had two rain postponements. And they're entering the week with a 23-22 and 22 record, which puts them five games behind the Greenville Drive for first place in division. So, for Week 8, our pitcher of the week is Columbia Fireflies right-hander Jordan Humphreys. And if you guys remember, he was also pitcher of the week in Week 1. So this is the first time we've ever had a player repeat. Uh, Humphreys started one game last week. He threw a doubleheader-shortened, seven-inning complete game shutout. Uh, he had four hits, he walked one guy, and he struck out ten. So since week, I've actually had the pleasure of seeing Humphreys in person uh, when he pitched in uh, game two of a doubleheader against the Lakewood Blue Claws a few weeks ago. His pitching profile really hasn't changed all that much uh, since I highlighted him back in week one. His fastball touched 95 a couple times, which is a little bit, you know, it's one mile per hour faster than the high of 94 that we've had in past reports. Uh, really, though, that's about it. I mean, he cleaned up the curveball a little bit, um, but it's still something he's working on. Same thing with the changeup. You know, they're both potentially average pitches with a little bit more refinement, but neither one is really nothing too crazy. Uh, the biggest thing... I guess seeing Humphreys in person as opposed to watching him on, you know, a couple of innings on MILB TV is that, you know, he look he does look big. He's um 6'2", 225 pounds, and I believe that. And what makes it kind of important, though, is that it doesn't really look like there's too much room for him to kind of add strength and extra velocity to his fastball. I'd say the velocity, um, his velocity is average for right-hander. Maybe even fringe average if you are expecting a little something extra from right-handers nowadays. But the point is that he really doesn't have um, plus velocity. You know, it gets good life. So maybe because of that, you could bump his fastball as a whole solidly into above, you know, average to above average range. Um, And even though he looks good mechanically, maybe a coach can tweak something and maybe squeeze another mile per hour or so out of the fastball to make it a definite above average pitch. But combine that with two potentially average pitches, and while it's nothing to sneeze at, you know, it's not exactly like pitches like that are precious commodities. Um, You know, I'm not saying that he's a bad prospect or anything, but he is not as good of a prospect as his numbers are this season. Um, I feel like because of his numbers, there's going to be a big division between the people that are just kind of looking at his numbers and scanning the stat line. And then the people who are kind of doing that next step and looking into what he actually does out there on the field. And now our hitter of the week for Week 8 is Las Vegas 51's first baseman, Dom Smith. Uh, Dom went 8 for 29 this week with a double, 2 home runs, 6 RBI, 1 walk, and 8 strikeouts. Um, Like Humphreys, Dom is a guy that is getting his second minor league player of the week nod, so that's a good thing. And he's hitting 325, 378, 500 with seven homers and 212 at-bats, so that's good. But maybe it's, you know, expectations and preconceived notions and whatever else, but, I mean, 
Dom needs to be a little bit better than good this season. Um, his three twenty five batting average looks impressive, but looking at that in the PCL context, it's 33rd among qualified hitters, and then 22nd among guys in the PCL that have 100 or more bats. His OBP, same thing. Uh, he's 52nd in the league among qualified hitters, and then 42nd among guys with 100 more at-bats. And the slugging percentage is 43rd among qualified hitters, and 35th among guys with 100 and more uh, at-bats. You know, that's all still decent. He's still in the upper half, you know, maybe the, the top third or so. But with all the question marks around Dom and what we know about the, you know, what we know the PCL does for hitters, really, I don't personally think that that's good enough. Um... He's on pace to put up roughly the same numbers that he posted last year. Uh, he had 14 homers in 484 at-bats last year, and this year it looks like he's on pace for about 16. Uh, he had 29 doubles last year. This year it looks like he's on pace to hit about 32 or so. I mean, that's obviously, you know, that's obviously really basic and crude math, but the point is that even in the PCL, Dom isn't really putting up strong numbers. I mean, the main knock against him in the past, is that the power hasn't really manifested in-game. And a lot of the names out there that I respect the most aren't really fully sure if the raw power even exists to begin with. Um, you know, having not seen too much um, impressive batting practice uh, homers and stuff like that. So nothing he's really shown this year um, suggests that, you know, the power is going to magically show up. Uh, the biggest thing that I've noticed is that he's pulling the ball for power a little more this year. Uh, last year, he only had about four homers to left field, whereas this year, he already has four this season. But that's kind of the only real change that I see from just a kind of cursory look at his hit profile and everything. So, I mean, Dom needed to come into 2017 and really, you know, pick things up with his bat. And two months, you know, about a third of the season through, he really hasn't done that. You know, there's still obviously plenty of time, so we'll see. But, you know, it's a little, uh, it, it's starting to get into that, uh, <laughs> to use the AA meme, it's it's gut check time now. So we'll see. So those are our, those are our minor league plays of the week for week eight. And I will be back next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. Hey Mets fans, Steve Schreiber here. It's time for some more unsolicited advice here on Mason Avenue Audio. I'm Steve. I'm here with Caitlin. Hi all, giving giving listeners the true New York metropolitan experience today by walking through New York City trying to get to work. So, you know, multitask is multitask. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds sounds good out there. I hear some <laughs> horns and you know, stuff like that. Yeah, so not too bad. Yeah, if you if you hear you know any random street noise, that's where that's uh, that's where that's coming from. Hear me yelling at someone? It's not Steve. It's probably a tourist. (laughs) Got it. Don't (laughs) don't don't punch anybody. I'll try. All right. Cool. So um, today on unsolicited advice, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, something that happened on Monday. Uh, Robert Gazelman made his regularly scheduled start. Monday afternoon, Memorial Day. Um, before that, uh, Sandy Alderson uh, went out and did a little uh, talking uh, about uh, the imp- impending returns of Stephen Matz and Seth Lugo. 
Um, so as we know, uh, Matz is going to take one of uh, the rotation spots currently held by Tyler Pill. And uh, Gazelman uh, would move to the bullpen for Lugo, um, according to Alderson. So this, you know, this is a, a reasonable kind of thing. Um, Gazelman has like, you know, ZRA is under six now, but it was over six before his last start. Um, so the only problem here is that uh, after Gazelman's very strong seven-inning start, uh, apparently he didn't know that he was being moved to the bullpen until the uh, the beat reporters got to him after the game. It's kind of like when like a relative dies and your parents tell everyone, like all the family friends, and just notify everyone, but like forgot you were away at college. They just didn't tell you, so you find out when you see all these condolence letters and people saying, I'm sorry. Is this uh, is this a uh, real life uh, thing that that happened to you? I don't I don't know. This is no. This is by no means a personal metaphor. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not projecting. I promise. But no, I mean that's exactly what it is. Like mm-hmm. the they told the media before they actually told the person involved, and that just makes them look bad. <laughs> And uh, I but mean, well, well, yeah. actually, do we, do we don't necessarily we don't necessarily to be like unbiased to play devil's advocate for a second. Maybe he was told and he just wasn't paying attention. Maybe he did know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. His hair got in the way. He started like playing with it, and you know, oh wait, I'm I'm going to the bullpen. Oh, okay, I didn't, I didn't realize. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I. I guess we don't necessarily know the full story. I mean, it could have been he thought that after giving a strong performance, he would, you know, stay in the rotation. But likely the reports are true, and the Mets kind of just made the decision without notifying him. So it probably did come as a bit of a shock that after such a strong outing, he was going to be demoted, if you will, because let's be honest, that's, that's exactly what it is. Of course, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so it's uh, this, is, uh, this is very, uh, very, very Mets. Um, you know, uh, telling, you know, telling the entire world that, you know, okay, we're demoting this guy to the bullpen, um, but not actually telling him. The person involved. Right. Yeah. Which, which seems like a pretty, uh, pretty important, uh, omission. It also is a bit rough too, that they announced the decision to demote the starting pitcher for the current game and they didn't give him the opportunity you know, to give a good performance. And I mean, arguably, all the votes before were saying, no, he performed poorly this season. You got to vote him now. Why are you even bothering to start him? But it looks pretty bad when you're giving a talk, you say, but, you know, actually, um, the guy who's starting today, I don't really know why we're starting him because he's going back to the pen. <laughs> and the other, the other thing that's kind of weird about it is that um, – uh, Alderson also said that Mats and Lugo are not even, they're not even coming back this turn in the rotation. They're both making another start, mm-hmm. another rehab start, you know, in the next few days. So, like, it's still an, a whole other week. So, Gazelman probably has to make another start. Exactly. It's kind of like he's counting down the days now until he goes from being a starter to a reliever. <laughs> it's, yeah, so, um... <laughs> 
this this is uh this is some uh, some high quality uh meths right here. Uh Definitely. wonderful, wonderful communication issues that we're uh, we're also uh you know, used to. But I mean at this point, who needs the bigger I mean the meths of course as an organization that need to understand better communication between players and you know, like the organization itself before they actually speak to the media because everyone knows. If the media knows something, it doesn't matter the order within the organization as much. But, I mean, I don't know. How would you have advised Robert to answer those questions? I mean, he he had no idea, so I think, yeah. you know, I think he, he just, he has to go out and, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of wonder if, like, the Mets organization, if, if anybody in the Mets organization, like, owns a cell phone. <laughs> Or, you know, um, talks to each other, you know, outside of, like, you know, games. Like, Terry, you know, making a, a move or something. Is like, do they actually talk to each other? Does, uh, you know... Yeah, I mean, and that's unfortunately something we don't know. I mean, this could be, like said, a clear case of just lack of communication. Or it could be a case of ego, where maybe he was told, um, but he thought if he delivered a strong performance, it would... Um, eliminate that factor or just wasn't even processing it just kind of shrugged it off and didn't even know it was being said we honestly don't know yeah yeah so um i don't know why i'm being so optimistic all of a sudden <laughs> but um, you're giving you're giving yeah. the mets way too much credit i know i, I am it's really weird <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we we've kind of seen this pattern, you know, between Sandy and Terry, and um, you know the the front office or the you know the manager saying something that the front office you know doesn't totally agree with. Or um, then there was also the thing um, a couple days ago. There were articles about um, Sandy being critical of Terry's Terry. uh, bullpen mm-hmm. usage. And then that uh, Sandy, I guess it must have been on Monday as well, kind of said like, "Whoa, wait a second! I, I never, I never said that. I never said I was critical." <laughs> um, which, which, oh, hell, hello, uh, more, more communication issues. But um, you know, the, I guess you know, in that case, the the ma- the uh, general manager is never really gonna go. Oh, hello. Mm-hmm. The the GM's never really gonna go uh, on the record for that sort of thing, yeah. I guess. Um, but still, it kind of looks bad if you know the when GM is attacking each other and no one is on the same page. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's be real. It doesn't. I mean, it, it does, but it, when it comes to like media facing things, it doesn't matter if you actually fundamentally do not agree. You at least have to pretend that you do and instill some sense of confidence in your organization so that, you know, like fans who aren't extremely skeptical like us actually do believe that everyone's on the same page. Really wonder if Terry Collins owns a cell phone, to be honest. <sighs> I mean, maybe he doesn't. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> he's what? He's 68? Um <laughs> And and Sandy Alderson's up there too, right? He's, I mean, he's, you know, I I can see I can see Sandy being kind of on top of it a little bit, like he's, you I know, mean, I would hope. yeah, <laughs> he has too much power to not have a cell phone, right, right. To TC probably uses like carrier pigeons or something. <laughs> 
Terry's Terry's got a couple of his uh his, his, yeah yeah or his he sends he sends his assistants to like run out kind of like Goodfellas style where they have like you know the guy yeah. runs down the street and tells you know message in person so uh mm-hmm. that's that's the fundamental issue today <laughs> today it's you know it's uh it's it's ever changing but um yeah. The uh, one of one of the other issues uh, that has has fortunately uh, disappeared, I guess, uh, is Rafael Montero. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, right? Um, yeah. Mercifully uh, demoted, sent down. Uh, probably, probably not uh, far enough <laughs> for for my for my liking. Uh, they could have yeah. they could have demoted him to like Mars. Uh, you know, and I, I would have, uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't have, you know, Yeah, basically at this point trying to get just as much negative juju out of city field as possible. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing really how, just how bad he was. And wasn't, wasn't he ranked pretty high up on the prospect list? He was, he was, I mean, he was a bigger prospect than Jacob DeGrom. Robert, right? Yeah. Yeah. Him too. And Degrom, and yeah, so um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 sort of a, a spectacular uh, failure. Potential doesn't mean performance. That's what it means, right? And at this point, we're we're also talking about potential from like four years ago. So that's true. Everyone's um, getting older. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is kind of a uh, you know it, we've we're pretty far removed from that. Um, exactly. So, uh, you know, Rafael Montero, uh, his, his presence, his, just his, you know, uh, when I see him, I, I get, you know, visibly, physically, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I get, I get like, like, ah, like very, very angry. That's my angry voice. That's my angry voice. So, um, (laughs) you know, I, I don't like seeing him anymore. I'm sure you don't. Hey, listen, I gotta go. I'm at work. <laughs> awesome. And so abruptly, but so yeah, our take it away, Steve. Yeah, so our unsolicited advice uh, is about over for today. Thank you, Caitlin. No problem. And we'll talk next time. Have a good one. Yeah. Over and out. So that's all we have today for unsolicited advice. I'm Steve. And we'll send it back to Amazing Avenue Audio. See you next time. I feel like at this point every week I just say I have no idea what to make of this team. And it's not laziness, it's genuinely because I have no idea what to make of this team. But they've looked better this week. Technically, they've been winning, at least, which is more than I can say that they have been last the last week. But they're games that they necessarily didn't deserve to win, but they've pulled them out somehow. Which, I mean, that doesn't actually matter in October. A win is a win, but it's still a little bizarre. And their pitching is still the problem, except suddenly, you know, Tyler Pill looked good last night. And that's not going to last. Tyler Pill isn't going to strand as many runners as he did normally.
but it works for now and you've got the bullpen is still a disaster paul seawald somehow has become your eighth inning guy like three days into his major league career but it's worked and right now you know you're gonna play the hot hand which terry does for better or worse sometimes and the hitting somehow has looked great since since Cespedes left since Cespedes hit the DL their hitting has been great so you know who knows and they're getting their starters back Mats and Lugo are both supposed to be back I think we've got you know they'll be back I think by next week they've got one more one more rehab start each which pushes Gazelman to the bullpen I don't know that that's the right move but I think it's certainly worth a try he looked good in his last start but there's something going on with the kid if he's injured or if it's a mechanism there a mechanical issue or if last year was a fluke I don't know I think it's worth a try I think he comes right back into the rotation as soon as they realize that Wheeler is coming close to whatever arbitrary innings pitch days game limit that they've set for him are going to say they've set for him but, you know, Cespedes is supposed to be back soon. Wilmer Flores is hitting. The outfield is going to be a bit of a mess. Bruce isn't hitting. Granderson has looked better, which is a great sign. The slump took a little longer to break than we'd all hoped, but he's getting there, maybe, hopefully, theoretically. Jose Reyes still should not be on this team for a bevy of reasons, but I unfortunately just don't think anything is going to give there. But they're winning some games and they're making it work however they have to they're still the four under 500 right now but they don't have all that many teams ahead of them in the wild card it's crazy to talk about this in may or it's almost june but you know it's it's getting late enough into the season that you start to look at things like this and I've been saying this for weeks. I still think they're going to end up falling into a wild card spot, whether they deserve it or not. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned up top, we really do appreciate it. We'd also appreciate it if you went to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever your podcatcher of choice is and rate, review, and subscribe to the show. That helps us in a lot of ways uh, beyond just making us feel good about doing a show that you enjoy. So please do that. While you're at it, we would love you to visit AmazingAvenue.com to check out all the Mets content we have there. Game threads, game recaps, news, the Mets Monday morning mind-boggler, all sorts of fun stuff we have going on there, so please, please check that out. Uh, you may also check out the site on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter at Amazing Avenue. Our email address is podcast at com. Please send us your questions. Uh, Chris and I love answering listener email. It helps us plan the show out a little bit, so please do that. We appreciate that. And uh, finally, you can find all of us on Twitter. I'm at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Brian Wright is at Brian Wright 86. Kate Feldman is at Kate E. Feldman. Caitlin McCabe is at KAM3194. Steve Schreiber is at S. Schreiber13. Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. And Aaron York is at Aaron P. York. So, until next time, we hope you guys have a good week. 
We hope the Mets can keep winning series. And until next time, let's go Mets. Thank you.